0: a soap manufacturer and a pastor were walking together down a street in a large city. Soap manufacturer casually says, well, the gospel you preach hasn't done much good, has it? Just look around. There is a lot of wickedness in this city. A lot of people doing the wrong things. The pastor didn't make a reply right away and, As they kept walking, they walked past a dirty little child making mud pies in the gutter. Seizing the opportunity, the pastor said, I see that soap hasn't done much good in the world either. There's a lot of dirt, a lot of dirty people around. And the soap manufacturer was quick to say, Oh, well, you got to understand, soap is only useful when it is applied. And the pastor said, exactly. So it is with the good news of the gospel. You have to choose it. And that's actually where we have come to with our runaway prophet Jonah. This is our third sermon in the Jonah series. If you're just jumping in at this point, uh, they're all on our website. I encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, Jonah knows that the big turnaround, running back to God instead of away from God, like he has been doing, is what he needs to do. Knowledge is not Jonah's problem. It's a question of will. In today's sermon, we're going to see Jonah finally hit the bottom. Literally, the bottom. The bottom of the ocean. Finally hit his desperation point, where he has to choose to apply God's forgiveness, restoration, his calling to go to preach to the Ninevites. So let's dive in and go with Jonah as he sinks below the surface of the stormy waves and plummets to the depths. What will Jonah's decision be? We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. If you have your print Bibles, I encourage you to open those uh, and also on the screen. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. You know, we aren't told who exactly wrote the book of Jonah. It may well have been Jonah himself, or Jonah could have dictated it to someone else. They wrote it down. Whoever composed this uh, book under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, did it in a really amazing, artistic uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It has artistry to it. That's what I'm trying to say. And this is part of what makes the book of Jonah such a gem of a little book. I want to show you my big discovery this week. We're going to show the slide. The whole book of Jonah is like a giant V. I had never seen this before until I saw this in a commentary. I think it's fascinating. All these verses starting right at the beginning of the book in Jonah 1 verse 3. It keeps talking about Jonah going down, 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 down until we hit that turnaround verse of 2.6 and then the rest of Jonah goes back up. Here's what I mean. I'll read some of these verses for you. Jonah chapter 1 verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went, down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then chapter 1, verse 5. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. As you can see, he's getting lower here. Jonah 1.15 then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. First he was in the bottom of the ship, now he's completely thrown overboard. He's sinking. And then Jonah 2.2, 2, he said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. He is sinking low, low. Finally, Jonah 2.5, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. So scholar Desmond Alexander and his great commentary on Jonah pointed that out. He says, from his initial flight, Jonah's progress has always been downwards. And each stage symbolizes a further movement away from God. That's the key. Each one of those getting further and further away from God. Now when Jonah can sink no lower, the Almighty God, King of the land and sea, intervenes and saves Jonah. And you know what? That bottom point, that turnaround point, that's where so many of us have to hit. We are doing life our way. We are on the throne of our lives. We aren't listening to God or interested in Him. We are running away. And it isn't until we hit bottom, when we can't sink any lower, that we were finally ready to lay down our stubborn pride and selfishness and finally say to God, I'm done. You take over. I can't do it on my own. I want you to come in and take control. I'm getting off the throne of my life. I want you, Jesus, to sit in that big chair. For Jonah, it's 2 verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. As we've been learning over the series, every time we read the word Lord, all in capitals, what stands behind that is the Hebrew personal name of God, Yahweh. So Jonah is saying, but you, Yahweh my God, brought my life up from the pit. My lovely wife, Lori, grew up in the little Alberta town of Carstairs. And there was a guy in her grade by the name of Mike. And Mike was almost continually in trouble. Lori kind of laughs about it. She says, yeah, pretty much every other day in school, the announcement would come on, would Mike Kime come to the office, please? And she said, it was a pretty regular deal, and the teacher would be like, Mike, get down there. About five years ago, we were on summer holidays back in Carstairs visiting Lori's family. And they have a beautiful little community center with all these grounds, and all of a sudden there was this whole carnival happening. And so we walked over, and we saw these little sandwich board signs, and it says Mountain View community church. And we're like, wow, a church is putting this on for the town. What a cool thing. And they had bouncy castles and a whole bunch of different things. And then this guy gets up on the stage and begins to give his testimony. And Lori just looks. She says, Darren, I I don't think this is possible, <laughs> but I think that might be Mike Keim. Sure enough, it was him. And he and Lori talked afterwards. And So I actually wrote Mike this week, and I said, Mike, would you tell your story? Would you give me permission to tell your story? And he very graciously said, oh, Darren, that'd be my privilege. So this is Mike's incredible testimony in his own words. He says, like most people in the 70s and 80s, families attended church or some sort of religious assembly. My family went to the United Church. My brother and I sang in the choir, acted in a few plays, sat in the corner at Sunday school. At the age of 11, my family stopped going. I'm not really sure why or why we did that. He says, I had a fairly normal upbringing. I had good parents. They were hardworking, honest people. He said, school was fun. I got into the regular type of trouble. I talked back to teachers, talked back to my parents, I got in a few fights. As I got older, I picked up a few speeding tickets, nothing out of the ordinary. And then he says, in my later teen years, I I smoked some cigarettes, I drank, I I did some minor drug use, and I had a few relationships with girls that always seemed to end badly. Typical one-night stands, no real substance or respect for myself or others, He says, in that time, I established my career as an apprentice plumber and worked and lived in the city of Calgary. He says, I met my wife in a bar in 1993, and shortly after, uh, she became pregnant, and we had our first son. Soon after, I got my journeyman certificate in plumbing at the age of 21. He says, I always knew I had to do something to kind of straighten up or grow up. And he said, having a son seemed to kind of propel me in that direction. He says, our early marriage and parenting years weren't easy, but we were both committed. and We knew giving up wasn't an option. We lived in the city till our son was four, and then we moved back out to Carstairs to raise our family. It was at that time that my wife began to seek out God. We decided to have more kids, but she had had her tubes tied, so she had to have that surgery done in another province. We had two more sons and had to build a large enough house for us all to live in. We're in the process of building our house in a new area of town. Happened to be across the street from my old high school principal. I still remember the day the high school principal had phoned the parents of a girl I was dating and said, keep her away from him. He will never amount to anything. So my oldest son, who is now 10 years old, now we're building our deck in the backyard, and this principal had gone for a bike ride. He was coming back to his house, and my son noticed that he had fallen off his bike in the middle of the street. I just kind of looked up and slightly chuckled, put my head down, kept working. But my son said, Dad, I don't think he can get up. So I stood up and noticed that actually he wasn't okay. I told my wife to call 911. I threw off my carpenter's pouch, ran straight off the deck towards him on the street. Even though he was bleeding on his face, I performed CPR on him till another couple came up the street and the wife assisted till the emergency medical services arrived. They shocked him a few times on that street and into the ambulance he went. At that point, we didn't know whether he had made it or not. The lady that had come and assisted in CPR was coming home from church that day. The principal ended up surviving, and they said, had we not done what we had done, he would have died. I went to see Leslie a couple days later. They lived around the corner. We spoke a bit about that day, and it was hard to talk about it without getting emotional. turns out this same family was at the park watching the kids play, And she spoke with my wife and invited her to church. They attended a church in Olds. That's a little town 27 kilometers north of Carstairs. I wasn't having any of it. Church is kind of a thing you do in your community. That's not even my town. I dug my heels in. I tried every excuse I could. That Sunday morning, my wife got up, got our three boys, 10 years old, 3 and 2, ready, And was going to go, everything in my body said, no, no, no. But I went. (laughs) And both my wife and I gave our hearts to Christ that morning. The next few years, he says, I struggle with trying to find my identity in Christ. I had issues with kind of this whole giving money to church thing, serving, worship. I went every Sunday and allowed God to speak to me. As pig-headed and stubborn as I am, yeah, I still can be, I can see a change. My wife's transformation was instant. She was 100% all in right away. I was a little mad, actually, and jealous that she had all this love and admiration for Jesus, somebody other than me. It took a while for me to catch on and get over myself. I remember the day on that street with a man that said I wouldn't amount to anything. One man's life was saved, but one man's eternity was changed. A few years after I was saved, we were attending church. We felt like it was time for me to leave my job in the city, become self-employed, except that it was in the middle of a recession. (laughs) Who does that? But I gave up a six-figure salary, started our own company. Two months later, we had no work. At this same time, my grandpa became ill, and I was able to spend quite a bit of time with him. It was Thanksgiving when we had our last big family dinner with him at home. He later went into the hospital not to come out. The day after Thanksgiving, he wanted to talk at the house. I went over. He spoke about being scared. He didn't know where he was going to go when he died. Was it going to be up or was it going to be down? All I could think about was the altar call I said yes to, the prayer I said with my hands raised. So I prayed with my grandpa at the kitchen table. It was something I'll never forget. He passed a few weeks later, and during one of our last visits, my wife and I walked into the hospital room. His eyes were closed. He wasn't responding to anybody, just sleeping. We prayed over him. Everybody else in the family for weeks had been telling him to hang on, be strong. We need you. We prayed, and then we said, Grandpa, it's okay to go. You are safe. You will be fine. You will be with Christ in eternity, Jesus loves you and he's waiting for you. Laying on his back, his eye sockets filled with tears. We wept in the room but had peace about where he was going. He passed away the next day. Mike says, A few months later, I was baptized with my son in the tank as well. He said, He's a lot younger, but I was 40. I watched my oldest son graduate from Bible college a few years later, marry a beautiful woman this spring, loves God and her family moved to town and attends the same church as we do. My other boys are growing up and serving in the church. We adopted two little girls. They're now five and eight and they love Jesus and the church. We have a kingdom building plumbing company that supplies our every need. We pour into our church financially. My wife and I are in leadership in our church and are offering pastoral care where we can we host small groups in our home we've shared the gospel with lots of people in car stairs we've been married 24 years and we love each other now more than ever we are so fortunate to have many healings and encounters with God throughout our journey we are beyond blessed and live under his grace and then he finishes with these great lines he says we are far from perfect but over and over God uses the imperfect the meek the mild and even the wild to do his work. And then I love this. He says, God never gave up on me. He will never give up on you. Much love, Mike. So I'm so thankful to Mike for sharing his testimony this morning. You know what? It occurs to me that the Bible attaches an incredible promise to that kind of turnaround, that humble, repentant attitude. Listen to the promise of James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's the point that Jonah had to come to. It's the point that Mike came to. And sure enough, that verse is true. God began to lift Jonah up. It's the other side of the V in the book of Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah on to dry land. Jonah gets a second chance. Chapter 3, verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Jonah 4, 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah. You can see the big V in the book of Jonah. All the way down, hitting the bottom, and all the way back up. And you know what? The significance, the importance of that is that is the great hope and power of the Christian faith. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we hit rock bottom, we cry out to Jesus Christ. That's when he takes over and brings us back to life. He lifts us up. I think that's one of the really important points that's going to stay with me long after we finish this eight-part journey through the book of Jonah. Well, now that Jonah has hit his turnaround point, his prayers change from, ah, help, to thank you. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Jonah prays to God, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of praise, grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now Jonah's an Israelite. He's raised to think and adopt the worldview of his people. It's a pretty natural human thing to do. For the nation of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem was a place where the visible manifestation, the Shekinah glory of God, would come down at least once a year during the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and God's visible manifestation of His presence would be there. The Israelites knew, though, that God wasn't limited to that temple. They knew that God was the ruler of the whole world. But the temple was a special place that He chose to have as a focal point of worship for the nation. So when Jonah says that his prayer rose to God's temple, he's he's ultimately saying, my prayer rose to the place you choose to show yourself to us. My prayer goes straight to you. Now as we've talked about a lot in the first couple of Jonah sermons, the sailors that were on the ship came from countries and places that worshipped other gods and goddesses, and they were almost always represented by an idol. Now, archaeologists have dug up tons of these all over the Middle East, ancient temples and idols. And now that Jonah has personally experienced both God's discipline and rescue, he knows in a deeper way, in a more full way, that God is the active and rescuing God. And Jonah thinks back to those sailors on the ship and all the people like them and says, Not with condemnation, but he says it with pity. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah's ultimately saying, hey everybody, listen to me. I have learned it the hard way. Yahweh, the one true living God, is the only one capable of saving. Don't put your trust in idols. They have no power. God has all the power. He controlled the dice game on the ship. He controlled the, star, the storm to start and stop. He controls this giant whale rescue that I'm currently stuck in. God controls everything. I absolutely love pastor and author Eugene Peterson at the beginning of the uh, introduction to the book of Jonah in the message version of the Bible. He says, Jonah is not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. He doesn't do anything great. Instead of being held up as an ideal to admire, we find Jonah as a companion in our ineptness. Even when Jonah does it right, like preaching finally in Nineveh, he does it wrong by getting angry at God. But the whole time, I love this, God is working within and around Jonah's very ineptness and accomplishing his purposes in him. Most of us need a biblical friend or two like Jonah. What a great line. Yeah, we need a friend like Jonah. There are days when you and I look amazing. We've got it all together. But then there are other days where even our best efforts seem to get it all wrong. It's incredible to turn to the page of the Bible, read about the prophet Jonah, and realize in a really amazing, comforting way, you know what? God took all of his bad attitude, all of his mistakes, all the things Jonah was doing, and he still worked out his amazing purposes. We had a little woodshed in our backyard, and I built it. I was pretty proud of it. Not the ultimate piece of carpentry. But it kept all of our little scraps of wood uh, dry. And we had a little fire pit. And so we did that for a bunch of years. And finally, Lori says, can we just get rid of that thing? So I said, yeah. So we got rid of the fire pit. And then our friend uh, has goats. So I offered, I said, hey, do you want this little shed? And he goes, yeah, my goats would love it. They, they don't like being in the rain for whatever reason. So... I loaded this thing up in the back of our Ford F-150, tied it all down, and Lori's like, Darren, this is not a good idea. Like, you should not be doing this. This is, uh." I was like, don't worry, honey. That'll be great. Don't worry. Well, I'm getting rid of the old woodshed. It'll be fantastic. Yeah, so I go down Simon's Hill, touch the brakes, and shatters our complete back window of our truck. That was a fun moment to go home and kind of explain what happened. (laughs) So the next day, our neighbor is out, and he's kind of like, wow, look at your truck. And uh, Lori says, you know, I love my husband dearly, but last night I kind of wanted to kill him. (laughs) And then our neighbor said the most amazing thing. He looked at Lori and he goes, oh, you guys are real people. And in the most hilarious way, my mistakes meant a huge amount to him. And it's been fascinating. In all the time since, we're having better and deeper conversations about God. So there you go. Be encouraged. (laughs) Even our mess-ups, God can use those. That's what he did for Jonah, and that's what he does for all of us. Most of us do indeed need a biblical friend or two like Jonah. So how does this section of the story end? Well, chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I've entitled this last point, A Second Chance. Well, the rescue mission is complete. Jonah is back safe and sound on dry land. First thing he did, I am absolutely sure, is find some fresh water and have a bath. And it was probably a long time before Jonah wanted to eat fish again. People would already be like, oh, no, no, I can't. We will discover next week what Jonah does with this second chance. But for now, I want to end on this incredibly important point, that God did indeed give Jonah a second chance. God gave Mike Chaim a second chance. And God in Christ has given each one of us a second chance. Jesus came to fulfill the symbol that Jonah was. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus would spend three days in the tomb after giving up his own innocent life for all of my sin and evil and darkness and all of your sin and evil and darkness. Jonah reemerged on a Palestinian beach somewhere, so grateful and thankful to be given that second chance. Jesus emerged out of the grave, the conquering hero who defeated sin, death, and the devil for all eternity to give the human race a second chance. Jonah is great, but Jesus' Ocean View Community Church is the ultimate. At the beginning of this sermon, I told you about the soap maker declaring that soap is only useful when it is applied. The pastor reminded him and all of us, it's the same with Jesus' work on the cross. That Roman cruel Roman cross almost 2,000 years ago. It's of personal use to us when we apply it. We have to choose Christ. It is not enough to know about Jesus. We have to know him personally. Jesus, the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, If you're here today and you're exploring all of this Christianity stuff, I have a question for you today that I want you to think about. Will you choose him today? If you're here today and you've followed Jesus for many years, I have a question for you as well. Will you live in the freedom and joy that that choice brings? Or will you forget that you have indeed been given a second chance? Either way, the choice is is up to you. Dan, come and pray for us.